Good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm reading from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. God, Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for gathering us here today. Lord, we ask that you be with Aaron this morning as he brings us a message. Will you please help protect his voice? And the rest of us will be open ears and hear them brought to us. And we just rejoice. Thank you for the scripture we read. And in your son, amen. Well, the alphas may be dismissed. Well, good morning. Let's see how my voice goes. Well, we don't try to avoid hard topics around here, but whenever we choose a sermon series or uh, a series that we're going to do on a Wednesday evening as leaders, we prayerfully consider our choices before we set out on the task. Uh, so if you were here a couple years ago when we, uh, our family arrived and we were coming out of uh, the pandemic, hopefully we're still out of it, um, we decided to go through Genesis. As we moved here and we were starting this new adventure, getting on our own, we uh, wanted to understand the basics of Scripture. We wanted to look at this recurring theme in the, or the book of Genesis of creation and fall and redemption and restoration. Many of the challenges that we see in the world today, if you don't have a good understanding of the gospel of or the book of Genesis, I don't know why I keep saying gospel of Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis, you'll potentially fall into those things. And then we looked at Paul's letter to the Philippian church, this young, joyful, fledgling church um, that became an admonishment for us as we set out on our own, as our own local church uh, from East Randolph. And thanks, Craig, for joining us and leading us in worship this morning. Then we looked at the Gospel of John because it was important for us to understand what we believe. And John is very clear about what we believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we would have life in His name. And we took that short break last summer to look at how that Gospel looks outside of the local church when we studied the book of Jonah. And now we're in Ezra and Nehemiah. And after casting some vision as a, for a church, rebuilding the temple, gathering a people, we get to deal with a very challenging passage this morning. Expository preaching can be defined as the main point of the sermon should be the main point of the text, what we see in the scripture. This helps us to avoid hobby horses when we're preaching. Our preferences sometimes get set aside of what we want to address, where we let the text that we read on each given Sunday preach to those, you, who gather with us. We're willing to do hard topics, but we always start with God's Word. And so as we go through the Bible, we have to address hard topics. Today we deal with a very hard 
topic, we have a community-wide divorce ceremony. Some commentators have suggested that this is one of the hardest passages in all of the Bible to interpret and to apply. And so let's pray before we jump into Ezra 9 and 10. How about that? <clears throat> Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your word. Unite our heart to fear your name. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love as we see in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main point of our text this morning is God wants us to put our idolatry to death and to repent. So let's see what takes place in Ezra chapter 9, if you want to turn there in your Bible. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For if they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that they are a holy race, has mixed itself with the peoples of the land, and in this faithlessness the hand of the officials and the chief men had been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I put, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, became, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifices. We'll stop there. So these people, as they came back into the land, they took wives from other nations, mixing themselves with the people of the land, worshiping foreign gods. This was forbidden for the people of God, as you see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Moses commanded them to destroy the seven nations, the seven nations that are actually mentioned in our text this morning, to make no covenant with them, including the covenant of marriage. And God's anger has been against Israel in exile because of their disobedience as they are returning to the promised land. And God wants them to not continue in their wickedness and this abomination, as God says. And so we again find ourselves at a second exodus. The question before all people is, will you bow down and worship God? Or will you bow down and worship an idol? Oh, thanks. The holy race has become unholy. God's people intermingled their worship with the nations, becoming themselves impure. They gave into the temptation that is before them. It's like the boy, right? Who cares if she is pagan? I love her. But to God, this isn't an, uh, an abomination, referring to witchcraft, wickedness, filthiness, abhorrence, offering of unclean sacrifices. And when they realize their sin, Ezra, as a good leader, he leads them. He's appalled at their sin. Look at verse 5. He leads in a prayer. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. 
and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For my iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings and the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame, as it is today. But now, a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within the holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the king of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up uh, the house of our God, to prepare its ruins, and give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servant, the prophet, saying, The land that you were entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it with the end to end, with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to the sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong, and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for the evil deeds, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us of such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandment against us and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. It's heavy, heavy stuff. Ezra is a good leader, though, and leaders lead. Notice the shift in language in verse 6. He says, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. And then it continues, for our iniquities. Ezra is innocent. He hasn't intermarried with the people of the land, yet he includes himself in the guilt of the people. He's sympathetic as a sinner himself. And Ezra acknowledges the sin, the guilt, and the shame that the people of Israel are experiencing. We should be reminded of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned. They went and hid in their shame, in their guilt from God. And God knew it all, and so God comes and He asks them, Where are you? Naked, they were ashamed. Not acknowledging their guilt, they blamed others. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. And I think we as sinners, and every sinner, we do the same exact thing, because we're enslaved to sin. And Ezra, again, he alludes to the first exodus, the deliverance from their slavery to Egypt. And he then talks about the second exodus, where they're going back to the promised land from their slavery in Persia. But Ezra knows, most importantly, what they are enslaved to. It's their sin and their idolatry. And the sin is humiliating. But not like in our culture, where humiliation is a, a sort of embarrassment. But rather, it's humility. Approaching the God of the universe in reverence and submission, he wouldn't even lift his head to pray. 
Some years back, Kristen and I, we went to a movie. Uh, it was a comedy by a no, well-known comedian. We enjoyed uh, his other stuff that he had done. And during the movie, the foul language was one thing, and then the crassness uh, took it to another level. But then they started to mock Jesus. And we looked at each other. We were with some friends, and we all looked, and we said, I think we need to leave. And I think we were the only ones who left that movie theater. And so, friends, a lack of shame with sin is a dangerous road to be on. Ezra was ashamed to raise his head. And if you're ashamed about the sin that you are practicing, what may that say about you? The world flaunts its sin. Its parades, its flags, its government, it's all over TV. We'll probably see much of that in the Super Bowl today, in the commercials, in the halftime show. And I'm not saying that we don't need to watch the Super Bowl, but may the unashamedness of sin never be characteristic of us. Ezra didn't shift the blame to the sinners in the congregation. He solidarily went to God as a great priest to offer intercession for the people of God. Ezra humbled himself in fasting and garments for mourning. And God warned them in the first exodus, don't do this. They failed in the second exodus, like the first. And I'm glad God doesn't respond to them with, I'm so done with these people. God has mercy. God is a loving father. Recall the <clears throat> parable of the prodigal son. Many of you know the story. And the younger son of the two boys, he asks his father for the inheritance. He goes off away and he squanders everything that he has. And when he comes to the end of himself, he says, well, I should go back to my father because it is better to be a servant to my father than to sit here with nothing. And this took place, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. The parable has also been called the waiting father. As God's grace and mercy, his care are always for his people. And God is waiting for idolaters like you and me to repent and to receive them with open arms. And like Ezra we can only go to God. And I think verse 8 is a beautiful encapsulation of God's character. Let me read it again. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Think about some of those themes that we saw in the Gospel of John where God has a secure hold on his people. He will hold us fast. Where his salvation brightens the eyes, giving us newness of life. And so 500 years before Jesus, when these things were taking place, they're looking to the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of God's own Son, in whom we believe. And the secure hold is like a tent peg, holding something down or holding something securely overhead. I needed some of those last week when our uh, pile of firewood fell over. I also will need some of that this summer when our hoop house probably blows away again in the wind. But when we wander, God holds us like a fetter, like we sang this morning. It's a chain that holds us tight.
tight. And God's hold is secure. And it's His grace to us to keep us in His love. And our passage is not about marriage. It's not about divorce. It's about our susceptibility to idolatry and what we need to do about it. Having followed other gods and realizing their error, these people repent. And after the summary of God's mercy and Ezra addressing the particular unfaithfulness and ingratitude of God's people, we can't avoid what happens. This community divorce ceremony. Exiled because of their unfaithfulness, they repent. But it didn't produce true change. And God punished them in verse 13, Ezra recounts, recalling the exile where God pulled himself back in discipline, allowing them to participate in the sin. God's saying in some sense, like, you want to sin, Israel? Okay, you can have it. And you'll realize it does not give you what you need. So passively, God allows them to suffer. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 1. In verse 28, Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Why? So we realize what we have left behind. And Paul says this in Romans 2, though. But God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so Ezra rests in the kindness of God, and it leads to repentance. And so let's look what happens in chapter 10, where Ezra consults with God in chapter 10, and they take some steps as a community of God's people. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, and the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God, and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God, to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made a leading priest and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And so they took an oath. And so the people join Ezra. They make a new covenant to put away the wives according to the counsel of the Lord, led by this man of God's word, as we saw last week. And under Ezra's leadership, they are unified. This is what it says and continues. Then Ezra withdrew from the before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Elishiab, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. So we see that Ezra, he fasts, he mourns, he pleads with God. And God used fasting last week, we saw, to protect God's people from the adversaries that were around them. Today we see that fasting helps God's people to depend on Him and get wisdom from God. And only God can help in this situation. And everyone comes together in verse 9. 
And then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within th three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said, You have broken faith and married foreign women and increased the guilt of Israel. And now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do this will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. And all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in open air, in the open. Nor is it this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And the Shulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. And so it's the month of December. It is raining. And not only is the weather causing them to tremble, but them standing before God in the fear of the Lord is causing these people to tremble. And then we see this in verse 16. Then the return exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers, houses according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. The idolatry was pervasive throughout the entire nation. Those who were guilty, we see are in verse 18, the priests. The Levites and singers in verse 23, and all the men of Israel in verse 25. They all participate. This is heavy stuff. You see why pastors try and avoid hard topics in Scripture? Divorce was permitted with Moses, as Jesus says, because of hardness of heart in Matthew 19. Jesus said divorce is permissible based on sexual immorality. The word there is porneia, and I don't need to go into all the details of what that can mean, but it means a lot. It's not just adultery. Paul says divorce is permissible to the Corinthian church on the basis of abandonment. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so how does this all fit together? I think we need to focus on the idolatry. The first of the Ten Commandments, which was in your Bible reading plan yesterday, says, You shall have no other gods before me. But we can't ignore this community divorce decree. The exile returned to worship and offer sacrifices. And Israel has always been commanded to be a distinct people, holy because God is holy. Ezra knows Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Ezra is aware of the scriptures and marriage that says that illustrate God's relationship with his people from the prophet Hosea. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 5. Ezra knows of Solomon who intermarried with a number of foreign wives and how it led him astray, forgetting his God. 
And Ezra's contemporary Malachi says in chapter 2 of his writing, God hates divorce. Yet Ezra takes drastic action, taking the path most likely to protect the covenant community of God from pagan syncretism. The souls of God's people were at stake. Like I said, divorce was something that was permitted in the Old Testament. In God's eyes, these marriages were wrong to begin with. And so Ezra annulled the marriages because they were illegitimate and they were unlawful from the very beginning. The U.S. has similar legal provisions related to unlawful marriages. We know it's not same-sex marriages because our government does allow that, even though in God's eyes it's not a marriage because a marriage is between one man and one woman before one God in one lifetime. But in 19, or sorry, 1882, the U.S. passed a law called the Edwards Anti-Polygamy Act. And reading up on this, here's a summary. It classified polygamy, having multiple spouses, as a felony. And since then, all U.S. jurisdictions prohibit polygamy by invalidating those marriages involving more than two spouses. And so polygamy in the United States since then is not a recognized marriage. Polygamist marriages are automatically annulled in our country because they're illegal. This is a unique case. The importance of maintaining the purity of the religious community superseded that of these marital relationships in Ezra chapter 10. And our views of marriage and divorce have to be based on the Bible. Sometimes these views are hard to swallow. Divorce is very sticky, but it doesn't mean we don't talk about it. And I bet every single person in this room has in some way, shape, or form been affected by divorce. Parents, children, maybe you've been divorced, some with remarriages. And this is a good reminder of the effect of sin that has on all of us. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And these marriages in Ezra chapter 10 are just one ray that Israel practiced idolatry. But God is holy. His people are called to be holy. This is not a prescriptive passage about marriage and divorce, telling us what to do and how to do it. It's about the moral and spiritual apathy and how it leads to idolatry and our call to repent when we are made aware of our sin. In a pagan world, the threat around them was all around them. It was all around the community of God to be faithful to their God. And as we close out our time, our application is to put off our sin and put on holiness, as Phil read in our passage for us. First sin, all sin, is an idolatry. And it's serious. God calls it here in this text a gross abomination. And so ask yourself, what do you put before God? In order of excuse me, in order of importance, and is it gross to you? Does your sin break you, or give you a feeling of guilt or shame? I think that's the Holy Spirit 
helping you see your need to repent and change and put on holiness. Friends, there's nothing more sad and dangerous than a sinner gradually walking his or way, her way to hell, unaware of the death and destruction awaiting them. Yet God is patient, as Second Peter says, so that many would come to repentance. Not putting off our idolatry is abomination. When we realize our idolatry, we turn to holiness. That's why Jesus died. The leaders of Israel should have told these men who married these foreign women, as a pastor has said before, just because she's hot doesn't mean that you should date her, because hell is hotter. Sin is gross. Jesus died for it. It affects our witness. We are to be salt and light, church. If salt loses its saltiness, Jesus says it becomes useless. So we must confess our sin. We must repent of our sin because Jesus died for our sin. We must also die to our sin. And so ask God to make your sin smell gross, sound gross, taste gross, feel gross. Ask God to make your sin gross, that you want nothing to do with it. And when we see sin as gross, that Jesus died for it, I think it affects our witness. And we repent and we change. And it's not easy. Ezra didn't rush into this. What did he do? He sat before God before he took any action. He faced the crisis. He went to the Lord for wisdom. He confessed his own sin, but he didn't wait forever. He decisively led the unity of the community in repentance. And so we admit our sin. We believe in Jesus. We go to God and we repent and we be God's witness. Because God is so gracious. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Language we saw in our text. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. When you're aware of your sin, friends, consider it a gift. God already knows of your sin. You can therefore confess your sin to Him and to each other and so be healed. And we can cast our sin away knowing that God will not cast us away. Imagine those families broken up. No parent, no spouse would want to do that. It sounds like it's a miracle, but they did it in submission to God. Sin is serious. Jesus said, gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. And it's hyperbole, but idolatry is scandalous. And drastic measures are necessary for a pure heart. And so what are the foreign wives, the foreign husbands, in your life? What are your idols? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it honor, respect, your family, your job, your stuff? What is it? Are you willing to trade even a good thing that you've made into a God thing 
and reorient your life to put God first? What is the thing, if I asked you, would you say, if you asked me to get rid of it, Aaron, according to Scripture, you'd probably say, not doing it over my dead body. Friends, it's worth drastic action. And I think you might be the only one who knows what you need to do. But it doesn't end there, where we can rest in God's mercy. God is rich in mercy. We are saved by grace. And all of Ezra, I believe, points to the fact that we have a better priest than Ezra, and we have a better temple than the one that they were building that day. As, excuse me, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, as he was walking before this temple that they are gathered in today, the second temple in Israel, he said this in Matthew's gospel, I tell you something greater than this temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you have condemned the guiltless. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is the better priest. He is the better temple. And he provides for us a better life, a godly life, a life where we can cast off our idols. Do you believe that? I encourage you to do that, even if today is the first day. I want to pray this passage in Ephesians 5 over us all as we close out our time. <clears throat> Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. So Father, we ask that you would wake us up. We know you hate sin, and we thank you that you have done something about it once and for all. Father, thank you that even in this downer of a passage, the Bible doesn't end here. Thank you that we know your Son came to die for us, to raise for us, to give us a newness of life, a life no longer enslaved to sin. Father, help us to be holy, for you are holy. Would sin not even be named 
thought of, talked about of us. Help us to fight our sin. Help us to do this together. Help us in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen.